make a few announcements uh, just so that we uh, we are all on the same page. First of all, I know that uh, you guys all know that we had to cancel our men's and women's retreats. That uh, was a shame. But the good news is, the blessing of that is, is that we're getting reimbursed all that money from Sandy Cove. It'll come in in incremental uh, payments so that it helps their cash flow. And we'll try to reschedule something in the future. But uh, if you've given money to that, you bought a plate, you know, spent money to uh, reserve your spot. You, some of you have said you just give that to the general fund. Thank you for that. If you want to keep doing that. Uh, if you want a reimbursement, uh, email Jordan at 68.org and she can send you out a, uh, a check. Um, the other thing is that kids info, moms and dads. You should be getting emails from Kim. If you're not getting emails from Kim, that means you're not in our Breeze uh, church management system, and you need to give Jordan that information, your email, your home address, your cell phone number, things like that. Um, but if you're watching this, you're probably in that. Um, community groups we're hoping are going to keep going. We're going to do them either by FaceTime or Zoom meeting or something, you know, it, any way that a community group leader can do that. So we're leaving it up to the group leaders to figure that out for everybody. Um, and then uh, lastly, or no, uh, not lastly, um, I would urge you guys to um, connect. You know, somebody said to me yesterday, I think it was Rob Schaefer said it was really nice to see somebody on FaceTime, you know, like not just make a phone call, but maybe FaceTime with people, look at people, care for people, uh, keep the keep this all going because we are still a church, right? Uh, the church isn't this building that I'm standing in. It's it, it's us as a people. Uh, so if you're looking for a place to give to people that are hurting, uh, we are uh, we have given to Convoy of Hope in the past. Uh, just re- realize that that's a a reputable place and uh, you know a Christian outfit that we have worked with in the past. If you want, they're they're raising money to help people, you know, with, with food or whatever, uh, you know, the basic needs of life and stuff like that. So uh, that is an option for you. Uh, don't forget that we are still raising funds for our Middle East Kids Camp 2020, which is, um, is just a kids camp that's happening this summer. You know, they may have to back the date up, but they'll still do it, I think. Uh, $150 sends one of these great little kids to a camp. They can sing and play and, you know, learn about Jesus and, and just have fellowship with each other. These are kids that are born into war and have grown up in war. So let's, uh, you know, give to them. And you do that through our simple give, uh, page on the website. So go to the website, click give, scroll down and find the simple give online giving app and, and go there. Um, and just look for the, the tab that says Emmy Kids, uh, Kids Camp 2020. Um, now that brings me to another, uh, thing that is at times like this, when we're not meeting, it does put like a sort of a, a block in our giving sometimes. Uh, I want to let you know that you can still mail checks to 1116 East Lancaster Avenue. Bryn Mawr, 19010, that's our address. You can get it off the website as well. Um, and you can still give through Venmo. If you, don't, if you have that app on your phone, you can find 68 uh, Vineyard Church on, on Venmo, and you can send, send uh, your tithe through that. That's very helpful. 
you can, but if you've never given through our online giving app, I would really urge you to set up a reoccurring uh, gift there. That's what I do. That's what m- many of you do. And that is super helpful right now. I know that this is a difficult time. Some people have lost income. Kim and I have lost some income over this whole thing. It's understandable that things may change. And, and this is not as a, you know, a, 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 you know, guilt thing. This is something that is just finances are spiritual and we need to, uh, to go ahead and, um, keep the church running. We're still paying our rent. We're still paying for all these things that we need to, to, to keep, keep moving. So, and, uh, lastly, I want to say about that is that on there, on the giving site, there is a benevolence fund that we just started. And we're, we're urging people to give above and beyond their tithe, just a love offering to put some money into that benevolence fund so that we have like a chunk of money that we can help people with. You know, maybe it's, you know, groceries or, you know, rent, you know, for one month or whatever, you know, just to help people get by through this if they've lost their job. I mean, I've talked to a lot of you and there's just so much devastation through all this. So we want to be uh, responsible with that and we need to build that up. Um, okay, I think that's all for now. And uh, if you have a Bible, grab it, and um, and we will. Um, we I got to get out of full screen here. Sorry. Um, if you have a Bible, we're, I, I I struggled with what to do today as far as a sermon, and I thought, you know, oh, should I just craft a whole new sermon around? what we're going through. And then I thought, you know what, maybe we just need some normalcy. Maybe we need to keep doing one thing, you know, throughout this whole thing. And I've really enjoyed uh, the book of John where we are. And so I I thought I would stick with that. Um, uh, So if you have a Bible, open with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. Uh, you know, in coming weeks, we may have to, we may try to do slides up there for you on the screen. So, uh, but right today, we just wanted to get this done and, and, and try it out for the first time. So John chapter seven, verse 37, it says on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Now I want, I want to say, as I'm reading this, Every single word in this verse, or in these two verses that I'm reading, 37 and 38, are absolutely dripping with meaning. All right, so think about every word. And he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, I want to ask you guys, um, where have we heard that before? Right. Just a few weeks ago, we heard that from the Samaritan woman at the well, that same meeting. And so you have to ask yourself, is John being redundant? Right. And what more can Pastor Jason say about this? How, how can he preach another sermon on the same words that we had a few weeks back? You know, living water, this same concept. Right. Well, I want to ask ourselves a few questions about this situation in John chapter seven, which is different from the Samaritan woman. Uh, it, you know, we have to ask ourselves the questions, when, where, to whom, uh, did he say all this, right? And what exactly is he saying to them? And why is he saying it at that time, right? So with those questions in mind, let's look at this through the, through, through that lens and let's, let's contrast those two events. You know, as I said, 
we, we first heard him say this term living water as he's sitting next to the well with this at, at a certain time of day with a woman, the Samaritan woman, when nobody else would be around. And we conjectured that she went at that time dur- during the day because of her sullied reputation. She couldn't go when other people were around. And so we looked at that, and it was a private conversation. No one else hears it. The disciples had gone off to go shopping or something like that. And it's intimate, and it's directed right at her heart and her situation using imagery of the water in that well, right? And so she was a woman, and I hate to say it, and I'm glad that it's not still the same, but in that culture, she was a second-class citizen. So no man would care or dare to spark up a conversation with a woman. She was also a Samaritan. And, you know, obviously Jesus did. He cared enough to do it, but nobody else would have. You remember Jesus traveled right around, uh, through Samaria when other Jews would normally would have taken the route around it to avoid being in contact with other Samaritans. So Jews considered Samaritans to be half-breeds, dogs. They, they had intermarried. They were an offshoot of Israel that inter, intermarried with others, had adopted foreign practices, practices that weren't of God, and they were, there was a long-standing feud between the two religious groups. And so no Jewish man at the time would consider it worthwhile to talk with not only a woman, but especially a Samaritan woman of dubious reputation. You know all that, though. You were at that. You were at that sermon. Anyway, but this situation in John 7, 37 is very, very different. It is very different. The conversation with a Samaritan woman was private and intimate. This is, is public and corporate. It's right out in the middle of everybody. So you have to ask yourself the question, when does this happen? When did this happen? And he tells us right there in verse 37, on the last and greatest day of that festival that he's at. So Jesus is at this festival. He's waiting until the very last and greatest day when there will be the most people there to hear. And right before they go home to give them something to remember during the Feast of Tabernacles, because that was what the festival was. And so you have to ask your question, why then? Why then? Why at that moment, right? And before we answer that, let's remember, going back to the Samaritan woman, no one would have cared what he told a Samaritan woman of dubious reputation in a private conversation. Sad fact, right? He could have said anything to her, but it, it wouldn't matter because no one in Jerusalem cared about her thoughts. And I, 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 Jesus did, right? Jesus did, but nobody else would have cared, right? But here Jesus is standing up in the temple courts on probably some high place, and he's pronouncing, it says, with a loud voice, which was only done if someone was going to make a solemn proclamation of truth, a declaration of truth, right? In front of, he's out there in front of Orthodox Jews, not the half-bred Samaritan, making this statement, right, to everybody, pronouncing to a large crowd of men, you know, all these faithful mostly men probably, and all these faithful coming to worship God and, 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 and uh, you know, things like that. So it's a very different scenario. Jesus is showing here some serious uh, bravado, extreme bravado. you got to understand that. I mean, it, it is absolutely phenomenal. He didn't come to this festival until about halfway through since the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him. So he's, he's taking his life in his own hands right now. But here he stands in the middle of the crowd shouting. And what does he shout? He shouts, believe in me. 
believe in me. And you got to understand that that is a death sentence. He has just pronounced the death sentence on himself. Peter is probably, you know, uh, having a bird. He's probably like, oh, get him down from there. He's going to get himself killed. Let's, got, let's get him out of here, you know. It was that bold, that bold of a statement. Because listen to what he says. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as, as scripture has said, so he's applying the scriptures to himself, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, if we rewarded that, and maybe Jesus wouldn't have been so hated, if he had said, let anyone who is thirsty come to God and drink. Whoever believes in God, a scripture, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That would have been totally fine. Would have been totally fine. They would have all nodded and stroked their little beards and said, hmm, ooh, that guy's got a real passion from the Lord. That's, that's good teaching, right? But he didn't say that. He said, me, believe in me, come to me and drink, believe in me as the scriptures have said, right? So what he's saying right there is, I am God. I am the source of life and the scriptures speak of me. Now, if anybody is on this, uh, whatever we're doing here today, and you do not, if you've never given your life to Christ, I want you to listen up from now on to the end of this sermon, because these are probably the most important words that you will ever, let me say, these are the most important words that you're ever going to hear in your life, that Jesus is making a proclamation about who he is to us, and this is very important for you to hear, and it's very important for all of us to hear. Now, if I had said what Jesus said on a Sunday morning, if I stood up at the church and said this, you know, you guys would lump me in the same category with David Koresh or Jim Jones or any other lunatic with a Messiah complex, right? You see why this would infuriate the Orthodox Jew. So the people there were confused. They're, you know, they're thinking, is he deceitful? Is he crazy? Is he the prophet? Is he the Messiah? There's whispering going on through the crowd and he's dropped this theological bombshell right in the middle of them, and it's having both positive and negative results. Um, and as a result, the Jewish leaders send guards to arrest them in verse 46. And, you know, uh, and when they're asked why they didn't, the, the guards say it's because no one speaks like this guy. You know, he's got like this authority. And, and then in verse 47, they get so angry at those guys and, and they ask him, has he deceived you too, right? And so they, they, they feel like he is deceitful, right? And these leaders are so arrogant. In verses 48 and 49, we see that they're so arrogant to claim that they are the guardians of truth, that all the people there are just a bunch of dolts and idiots, that they don't really know the law of God. And so you hear this spiritual pride in their demeanor. And they have become the guardians of truth instead of followers of truth. The guardians instead of the followers of truth. So, We know that he's in the temple courts. We know when, the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also referred to as the Feast of Booths. Uh, We know to whom he's speaking. The nation of Israel gathered there together for remembrance, for worship of God, and all that stuff. And we at least know in part what he's saying, that he is the source of life, and that they must come to him for it. In essence, he is making claims of divinity himself. He is saying, I am God. But we still don't know why he chose to say it at that time, which has everything to do with the reason they're gathered there for the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's that's very important. Now, 
During the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a solemn procession each day for seven days from the temple to get water from the, the pool of Siloam. And a priest would go and fill a gold pitcher with water from the pool, and then he would return to the altar, and he would pour out the water where the parts of the sacrifice were arranged, while the choir, listen to, listen to what they're singing. They sang Isaiah 12, 3, which says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Amen, right? And, I, and they would also sing Isaiah 55, 1, which says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And it just kind of gives you goosebumps. This is Jesus, you know, saying this in the middle of all this stuff, right? So this this ritual reminded them of the water from the rock and the wilderness wanderings, which saved them. It imaged the coming Messiah in Zechariah chapter 14. But that was for seven days. But the eighth day was extremely different. There was no singing, there was no shouting, no water was being poured out on the sacrifice. It was actually a very solemn, quiet day of repentance. Amen to that. Solemn, quiet day of repentance. So against this backdrop of this silence and all of this symbolism, Jesus breaks the silence. He stands up and he breaks the silence with a loud voice. And he makes this claim, and his offer to come to him himself, come to me and drink, was an unmistakable offer of salvation to everybody there. It, it, it is so crazy. It's wonderful, you know. And so on this particular day, at this festival, with these rituals fresh in their minds, you know, the, the sacrifice, the water, the living water, all that stuff, is for us another painting of Jesus as the fountain of life among all those thousands of faithful people there, right? So the crowd, the tension, the, the, the claims, the questions, it must have been so wild to be there at that moment. Now we have to ask one more question. What does living water mean to me? Because we've said in the past that Jesus is the living water, and I believe that is true. I know that is true, actually. However, there's something John adds here, which is also true about living water, and so what more does living water mean to us? Well, he answers that if you look in verse 39. And verse 39 says this, By this he meant the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? Whom those who believed in him were later to receive. You remember Acts chapter 1 when the disciples were sitting there, the apostles were sitting there, and the, and the Spirit was poured out on them. So it says, they were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, I spent my early years of faith in a very conservative evangelical church, a church that I still love. I loved then. I still love now. I got tremendous teaching there. I learned about discipleship and theology and doctrine and missions. I learned about leadership and ministry, and I was given ample opportunity to use my gifts all the time. I developed my preaching there, and I'm so grateful to that church for all of that. But I will admit that there was one thing missing. All churches had their thing, right? We, there was a little thing missing. It wasn't that we didn't believe in the Holy Spirit at that church. We confessed the Spirit to be real. Our theology our surrounding the Spirit, our thinking about it was real and good. But we didn't often at all, or sometimes at all, talk about or pray to or rely on the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. 
It was almost as if the Trinity had become Father, you know, the big thing, and then Jesus, and then Holy Spirit, like little tiny thing, like kind of off to the side, you know, a small add-on that we just didn't understand, right? But according to John, this is what Jesus meant by living waters flowing from within us, the Holy Spirit, right? You know, Francis Chan wrote a book called Forgotten God, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. Good title. Comes with a workbook. Uh, get it and use it if you'd like. It, it's, it's a wonderful book. But let me just quote from the introduction of it. It says, from my perspective, the Holy Spirit is tragically neglected and, for all practical purposes, forgotten. While no evangelical would deny his existence, I'm willing to bet that there are millions of churchgoers across America who cannot confidently say that they have experienced his presence or action in their lives over the past year. And many of them do not believe that they can. If you just read the scriptures without any prior context, you would be convinced the Holy Spirit is as essential to a believer's existence as his air as air is to staying alive. I believe, he says, that this missing something is actually a missing someone, namely the Holy Spirit. And without him, people operate in their own strength and only accomplish human-sized results. That is a good introduction to his book. Jesus acknowledged the divine nature of God the Father. Jesus claimed divinity for himself. And Jesus claimed the same divinity for the Holy Spirit. Um, but we tend to, to look at the three, the three persons of the Godhead, as if there's some sort of hierarchy of power in the Trinity, right? Uh, the, to us, the Trinity is God the Father as the head honcho, Jesus as the subordinate son. And when we write the Holy Spirit, you know, in a sentence, we have to use our eraser to remember to capitalize the H and the S. The Spirit becomes, in our minds, subordinate to the other two. But that is not at all how Jesus would view the relationship between the three of them. Statements like this from our own statement of faith clarify for us what the relationship of the Trinity is. It says, we believe in one true God, true and living God, eternally existing in three persons, equal in power and glory, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, do we fully understand that? No, we don't. Do we have like little pithy, you know, illustrations to try to, to, to explain it? Yes, we do, but all of them fall short. It is just something that we have to receive and believe and trust that God is going to make clear to us in the future when the kingdom is fully established. I cannot say that I can fully uh, grasp the Trinity myself. But any balanced church would agree with that statement, no matter the denomination. If they don't, don't go to that church. They're not preaching the, the Bible. But... It says, equal in power and glory, one God, same substance, yet still many of us uh, have so little knowledge and relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has become, so in our minds, sort of the Trinity's errand boy, right? But he is equally God, poured into, out into our lives to reveal our need, John chapter 16, for our conviction, John chapter 6 to baptize us into the family of God, 1 Corinthians 12, to seal us in, in Christ, Ephesians chapter 4, to fill and use us in the kingdom work, Ephesians chapter 5. When the Spirit of God lives in you, John 14, and lives through you, Galatians chapter 5, you have strength to do all things through His Spirit, Philippians chapter 4, right? The Spirit knows my need. 
He brings it before the Father, Romans chapter 8. It's the Spirit of God who makes the Christian life possible, Galatians chapter 4. The Spirit of God comes with the, with, with the Christ, Romans chapter 8. Every uh, Each and every work of God involves all three persons of the Trinity, yet the Spirit of God abides in us as believers as day-to-day help. He is the water of life to us. Jesus, Jesus referred to that special baptizing, that sealing, and that that uh, indwelling of, of the Spirit of God in the church age, in believers, which started at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 1, when they received the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that he would send that Spirit to his followers back in John 15, right? So, in a sense, we can say if the Spirit is the water of life, then Jesus is the fountain, right? And that that fountain was turned on when Jesus was glorified through the cross and through the resurrection and through his ascension, right? But here's the deal. Many of us believe that it would, we would be better off if Jesus was right here, physically right here next to me right now, right? But listen to what he said about that in John chapter 16. Let me take a drink really quick. He said, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Isn't that great? So do we have a, a, a small view of the Holy Spirit? Do we, do we avoid the Spirit, you know, interaction with the Spirit because we don't really understand the Spirit? As if the fountain of power has been turned off in our life. And our lack of power in our lives sometimes doesn't jive with the book of Acts. Jesus said, don't worry about me leaving. I'm, it's better if, if I leave because you're going to get the Holy Spirit. Is that really, to us, is that really better than having Jesus right here with me? physically present with me. Well, Jesus said, wait here. He said, the Spirit's going to come upon you. Don't try to change the world yourself. He said, wait, you need the Spirit. And they wait, and you remember the story. The Spirit comes, it's like a rushing wind and tongues of flame, light on these guys, and the fountain is just absolutely turned on. These guys are changed. They are transformed in an instant. They go out to the nations gathered in Jerusalem at that moment, and they speak to the crowds in power, and everyone hears them in their own language, and there was a difference in the disciples after the Spirit rested on them. They weren't the same. Now they had some sort of a strange power, and they did things that Jesus had been doing. It's beyond intellectualism. This is beyond just, you know, good teaching and all that stuff. But here, here's the problem. Fast forward to church life now. Sometimes, isn't it so predictable? You know, go to church, sing, hear a message, go home, forget it. <laughs> go to community group, go home, you know, go to work, right? That kind of thing. God's definitely in the mundane of life. I believe that as well. But when we need it, when we need it, where's the power? Are we in the practice of living in this powerful, dynamic life with the Spirit? Maybe we have an imbalance. Maybe we've been imbalanced in our view and our pursuit and our experience of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we've not engaged the Spirit, spirit and, and, and God the Holy Spirit waits patiently for us to do so. Maybe we're like Nicodemus, you know, we can postulate our theology of Jesus and God the Father and all that stuff, but we're uncomfortable with this wind. 
You know, it's like nailing jello to a wall. It's like netting the wind. The the spirit that we can't contain or control. Don't ever fall into the trap that you have learned or experienced all that there is to learn and experience about or with God, because there is always more to experience. Francis Chan tells a story of a couple in his church, and the guy was interviewed on CNN as the strongest man on earth. And they say that he benches uh, over a thousand pounds. I'd have to see it to believe it. They say that his wife benches 400 pounds. I just, I'd have to see it. But apparently they're very, very strong people. And Francis asked, wouldn't it be weird if you went to their house and you met their kids and their kids were all scrawny and weak? Wouldn't that be just strange, right? So that's the question. Are we the scrawny, weak children of God denying the Spirit's power in our lives, right? You know, church should be a family of, you know, family gathering, waiting to see what dad will do, what the father will do. And he wants to be interactive in our lives. He wants to be invited into our lives, like, like riding a wave on a surfboard, uncontrollable and powerful, right? And this is where what we believe to be true of God makes a big difference. Our theology, how we think of God, does it come from what he has communicated to us or not? Do we really believe it? Because if you view God the Father, as the angry cosmic killjoy, and Jesus is just fire insurance, and the Holy Spirit is just the subordinate cork in the bottle of salvation, you will probably not see the Spirit's work much in your life. But if we can say, God is a God of life, He's a loving Father, Jesus is our daily bread of grace, our sacrificial lamb, the Holy Spirit is our power for living, One substance, three persons, equal in power and glory. If we believe the kingdom can break into our reality, then we can break free from the confines of a powerless life. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the evangelical rallying cry. You know this, ver- this these two verses. For, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your work, so that no one can boast, right? We know that. But we need to continue on to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the next verse. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we have reason for being here. We have purpose for being here. We have something that God wants to do both in us and through us to other people. It is more, it, it goes well beyond my personal salvation. It goes way beyond that. It comes to a dynamic life in the spirit of God, in, in, in the kingdom work and mission of God in, in the life of people. You know, in John 14, 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. The fountain's been turned on, right? Yet, Let's be honest, a life of risk scares us to death sometimes, so, some more than others. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. We all know that, right? You know the story. John Wimber was, he was one of the founding members of the vineyard. Uh, John Wimber was reading in the New Testament. You know, he was at this, this seminary that was sort of a staid, you know, kind of very intellectual seminary. And he, he thought, you know, I should see this. I should see healings. I should see power. I should see all this happening. But he wasn't. And so he started praying, 
for hundreds of people to be healed. Anytime he came across somebody sick or infirmed, he would pray for them, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. And he was very discouraged in his newfound non-healing ministry. And one day a woman walked up to him and said, you know, can you pray for me? And he said, ah, it's not going to work, but I'll pray for her. You know, it's because she asked. I'll be nice, right? And on the spot, that woman was healed. And from that point on, not every single person was healed when John prayed over them. But over the years, thousands of people were healed by John Wimber's prayers over that. And later in life, John was speaking to a crowd about his kingdom ministry, his healing and his power evangelism, praying over people and sharing the gospel through this power of the Spirit. And they wanted to know how he did it. And he said, you you want me to just tell you how to do it, but I can't. Because you do not want to spend the hard work, you know, do the hard work which brought me here today. Go out and pray over 200 people and then come back and tell me Jesus doesn't have the power to move in people's lives. And that is true, right? There's much for us to unlearn and to relearn in the life of God, but it takes risk and it takes practice. It really does. So do we want the fountain turned on? Right? That's the question. You know, one Cincinnati church uh, decided to get a booth one day at a, at a psychic fair, which was being held in their city. And, and the pastor was not some crazy, you know, on the fringe Pentecostal guy or anything like that. He was just a regular pastor trying to live in the radical middle, trying to do a good job and all that stuff. And they got this booth and he, they put up a sign which said, Healing Prayer and Dream Interpretation. Now, a woman at his church you know, was the impetus for all this. And, and when he showed up and he saw the sign, he was, thank God for you, you guys in the church that push, push your pastors beyond their comfort level. Because he got there and he said, do we know how to interpret dreams? And she said, no, but God's going to show us. <laughs> right on the spot, God's going to show us, right? And the end result was that they had prayed over hundreds of people at that, at that thing and great things happened, right? Um, And the attendees were coming back at the end of the conference, and they were all saying that the spiritual power at this booth is the absolute greatest here. Can you pray over me again? Faith, R-I-S-K, produces great results. The fountain has been turned on, equal in power and glory, one God and three persons. Do we want to live in that power? And if we do then we have to start to believe differently and take faith risks. We have to start listening to God. Here are three challenges for you today. Read and study, maybe even with others, using Francis Chan's book, uh, Forgotten God. You know, get a free Zoom account if you need to and get together with some people on that or FaceTime, you know, however you want to do it virtually to meet up and discuss that book. It would be great. Um, Secondly, There are plenty of people around us right now that are in need of prayer. I mean, this is a really crazy time for everybody. I've heard some of your stories. I've called, I'm trying to call everybody in the church and just talk through what they're going through. But, you know, ask God to reveal someone in your life right now and invite the Holy Spirit to clear away all fear and doubt in your heart about approaching them about the gospel and speak and, and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you about them, to give you a word for them. And then then call that person, FaceTime them or call them and talk to them and tell them that you feel that God would like you to pray for them. 
and that he has something to share with them, that, that the God of the universe actually has something he wants to share with them. Maybe you do that by phone or FaceTime right now since we're in the middle of this crazy pandemic, but ask them, can I pray for you right now, and then do it on the spot, right? And if they're not healed, if they don't come to faith, if they don't, you, if, they, if you don't get anything from the Spirit for them or nothing seems to happen, that's okay. 99% of the time, those people will actually feel loved and cared for and impressed that you took the risk to pray for them. Now, thirdly, here's another challenge, a unique one. Do a virtual version of uh, a spiritual treasure hunt you know, with a group of people. I, I, t- this typically would entail gathering together with a small group of people and praying that the Holy Spirit, Spirit directs you to some local need and stories about, about, about how this plays out. One, one is of a small group praying as, as one person, you know, they, they ask the Holy Spirit to speak to them about a need in their community, and one person senses that the Spirit is giving them an image of a yellow house with green shutters. And another person said, I know that house. There's a house really close to here like that. So they get in the car and they drive over there and they sit in front of the house and they start praying over this house. And one person feels that the spirit is telling them that uh, this person um, needed groceries. So they get in the car and they drive over to the grocery store and they buy four bags of groceries and they return to the house. They knock on the door. The person comes to the, to the door and they find out from t- talking with him that he had lost his job and he had no way to get groceries. He couldn't afford them. And they were over, able to share the gospel with him and pray over him at that moment. And it just changed the guy's life. You know, those are powerful stories. Maybe FaceTime with some folks, maybe do this virtually somehow. I don't think the spirit is limited to us having to be in the close proximity to, together or to, to direct us or to move through us. You can go and, you know, uh, do this, you know, make phone calls to do this and try it and then come back and tell me what the Spirit has done because I would love to hear those stories. Let me end by saying this. God has chosen you for this time and for his purposes right now. God has chosen you for this time and for his purposes right now. And the Holy Spirit has filled you and he can move through you in power, and you will change lives. Times like these are open doors for the gospel in people's hearts. With each tragic event in history, people have come to Jesus in greater numbers. People are losing all sense of security in life. Some of us are losing that. And Christians in faith have historically put themselves in harm's way for the sake of other people or stood in the gap with the hope of Christ in hand for them. Be open to the idea of selfless, practical love and care for the sake of Christ and others. Be open to that right now. Seek the the Spirit's leading. And I urge you, simply, this is a good one, I urge you not to succumb to fear and anxiety, but to listen to the Spirit's lead as you are faced with situations and respond in obedience to faith in Christ. And, you know, you guys, send... um, Send your prayer request to prayer at 68.org uh, during this time, and we'll um, make sure you get prayed for and, uh, you know, things like that. But let me just close us in prayer, and then I'm sorry we couldn't get the worship done today. We'll work on that, and we'll get it done by next week. Amen? So let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your boldness in proclaiming who you were to all those people way back then and still to us today.
We, we thank you that you poured out your spirit on the church, and we want to live in that dynamic, powerful life of interaction with your spirit, of being led by you, of, of divine moments that you orchestrate for us, and you speak through us, and you change lives, and you transform, li- transform people. We, we want to be a part of that kingdom ministry, so we ask that you would challenge all of us, myself included, Father. I, am, I feel so weak in these areas sometimes. So I just pray that you would bless all these people as we move forward and bless us in this time of great sort of disconnection. I pray that you would make us sense the connection of the church and that you would create new connections with other people that want to find out who you are. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, you guys. I hope that all went through on you. Um, good. <laughs> Somebody just said amen. So uh, we will do this again next week. Hopefully we'll get all the uh, the the audio, video worked out for, for worship, and and uh, it'll all go off with a, out of hitch. I, I trust that. Hey, by the way, let's –